The United States isn't unique in having a large portion of its population dabble within the dangerous world of conspiracy theories. In fact, a 2014 University of Chicago study reveals that 50% of Americans believe at least one conspiracy theory, which they define as a theory where no matter how much disconfirming evidence comes in, a person somehow still manages to co-op that would-be disconfirming evidence into part of the conspiracy. Thus, those of us that work overtime in order to correct our crazy relatives of the truth only serve as reinforcements to the conspiracy. Perhaps you're part of that 50%, potentially believing that Stevie Wonder isn't actually blind, or that the real Paul McCartney died in a car crash and was replaced, or even that Prince Charles is a vampire. Yep, each one of those are all real conspiracy theories living out their best lives in the real world that we inhabit. Conspiracy theories have always had the ability to harm. We are taught at an early age that we should attempt to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. You may have just chuckled a bit at finding out that a large portion of your neighborhood may believe that the walrus, Paul McCartney himself, is an imposter. But how would you feel if you were the now 80-year-old rock and roll god Paul McCartney and people were trying to prove that you were fraudulent? Paul, if you're listening, I know that you're the genuine deal. Not too sure about Ringo, though, as the oldest Beatle never seems to age. Those caught in the rabbit hole tend to run afoul of common sense and can easily find themselves wandering down dark paths, often exhibiting frustration that the mainstream populace disregards the proof that you see as so obvious and incontrovertible. Perhaps perpetuating the silly conspiracy theories have made it more acceptable to believe the truly dangerous ones that float about our society, regarding our government, our cosmopolitan societal makeup, and during our most recent pandemic, our health services. I came across a new conspiracy theory for this podcast, one that is so far-fetched, based upon the historical evidence, that it is laughable. Laughable, that is, until you realize that there are people out there who actually believe it. The theory is the work of a 2007 book by French journalist Marcel Gay and former Secret Service agent Roger Senzig. They claim, without any legitimate evidence at all, that the illiterate Joan of Arc was actually the illegitimate daughter of the French Queen Isabella, who secretly trained her for a militant life in order to utilize her as a political puppet in what was known by the codename of... Operation Virgin. Set aside the cool military operation name for a moment. After all, why does every war campaign now have to have the word freedom in it? I'm begging our Joint Chiefs to return to the World War II days of Operation Sledgehammer, Torch, and Urgent Fury. But put that digression aside and follow the conspiracy theory to its end. Namely, Gay and Senzig assertion that Joan wasn't burned at the stake by the English. They posit that Joan escaped her fate and secretly married a French knight with whom she lived happily ever after. One always wonders how so many individuals can manage to delude themselves so badly, but we are also constantly reminded that there's a sucker born every day. 
Actually, at this planet's current rate of birth, there are likely 10,000 suckers born each and every day. With so many idiots overcrowding the planet, I sure hope that the lizard people manage to turn off that liberal climate change machine before JFK returns from working the space lasers in order to hand our government over to the Soviets. Now, to be crystal clear, we know from contemporary sources at the time that Joan was burnt at the stake. Burnt so thoroughly, in fact, that she was reduced to mere ash, which was then scooped up and thrown into the river sign so that her followers would be unable to establish a shrine dedicated to her bodily remains. Yet for hundreds of years, the town of Shannon has displayed artifacts that it claimed were the true remains of Joan of Arc. Among the collection's prized possessions are two pieces of bone, a fragment of blackened cloth, and what appear to be pieces of coal. Clearly worth the museum's admission price, right? The saint's supposed remains were discovered in a jar that was precisely labeled with the words, Remains found under the stake of Joan of Arc, Virgin of Orleans, in the attic of a Paris apothecary in 1867. And if you can't believe everything you find in the attic of a 19th century Paris apothecary, what can you trust? Prior to 2007, the jar of remains had been examined by the Catholic Church in 1909 with the decisively written conclusion that they are probably Jones. You can literally hear the shrug inherent in their written response. There you have it, conspiracy theorists. After all, the Catholic Church has at times suggested that it is infallible, and therefore their conclusion, which includes the word probably, should be enough to settle all debate, and ensure that you don't buy Gay and Senzig's book. But perhaps you are one of the few out there that is aware of one or two oopsie-daisies committed by the Church. For you, the label on the jar found in the dead apothecary's attic should be enough to settle any and all doubts. After all, it was clearly and conveniently labeled with its contents. But a few DNA experts still weren't convinced and wanted a closer look at those remains themselves. They were finally granted full access in 2007. The results were indeed shocking, as it turns out that Joan of Arc had a human rib, as well as a mummified cat leg bone, even more amazing, it turns out that she lived sometime during the 3rd to 6th century, rather than the 1400s. If you had thought that her astounding feats, which included defeating the English at Orleans and marching Charles to Reims for his coronation, were impressive before, imagine having to do so with one of your legs so much shorter than the other at the tender young age of 1,200 years. Conspiracy theories are so insane and easily put down if we trust the experts and the systems that are already in place. Yet so many human beings aren't willing to do that. Instead, they pay their admission price, snap their pictures of a random collection of bones, and then proudly inform everyone on social media that they are now a certified expert on Joan of Arc. Why her? Why would thousands of tourists pay for admission to see two random bones? Regarding Joan, the answer is as clear as Stevie Wonder's eyesight. She is an aberration to the norm, a contradiction in our world, 
a woman leading soldiers during the Middle Ages, a person who was eventually abandoned by the country that she had risked her life for, a country for which she had stepped on a pike, been shot with two arrows, and had her head bashed in with a rock for. In addition to the about-face from her nation, she was condemned by the Catholic Church to whom she had pledged her firm, undying loyalty to. That was just her life. At her death, France transformed the young woman whom they had abandoned during her hour of need into a heroine, a national symbol for the greatness that was France. The church that condemned her recast her as a saint. Mark Twain, a man who knew a thing or two about a phrase, didn't hold back on his thoughts regarding the legacy of our subject, claiming that next to Jesus Christ, Joan is the most extraordinary person who ever lived. In this episode, let's look at the ending of her short but amazing life, one that unfortunately doesn't end with a happily ever after for our protagonist but does leave us with an indelible legacy. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the fourth and final episode in a series regarding the warrior Joan of Arc. Episode number four, the trial and execution of the maid. While many would say that Joan had already achieved victory, after all, she had shown up relatively unannounced as an illiterate 16-year-old peasant girl in order to take control of the French armies, which had been badly losing the Hundred Years' War for the prior two decades to her arrival. She immediately relieved the Siege of Orleans before going on to claim victory in a series of battles in order to see the out-of-luck dauphin anointed as the one true king of France. Joan, however, and her voices that she claimed to have heard didn't believe that she was done. After Joan was pushed back by the defenses that ringed Paris, the newly crowned king of France was forced into a tactical, seasonal retreat. Joan reluctantly followed. During this forced timeout, her enemies studied what had befallen them since Joan had blazed onto the scene. Analysis regarding her strategy is pretty simple. Like a Viking berserker, she was locked into attack mode at all times. Although she never used her sword, whose hidden location had been revealed by the voices to her and her alone, she did continually raise her own banner to propel her men to victory by placing herself directly into the center of the melee. This was what resulted in the arrow to her neck, the stone to her head, and the crossbow bolt that lodged itself in her thigh. Knowing her tactics, it seems easy for us to figure out a way to counter her, something that Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, and lifelong enemy of Charles's Armanax, did on May 23, 1430. Duke Philip split his forces, hiding half of them so that they could spring the ambush after Joan had fully committed herself to the fight against the walls of a relatively minor city. She was unhorsed and surrendered as would be expected of a male knight of her rank. 
Historian Helen Castor, whose work has been our main source for this series, argues that Joan saw herself as a soldier, and as such, she would expect to be ransomed. The practice was rampant during the Hundred Years' War. Consider the case of Richemont, the man in charge of the French armies. He had been a prisoner for five years. Another character in our story, the Duke of Orleans, had an impending ransom that should have granted his city safety at least until his citizens raised the appropriate fee in order to re-establish his rule. The creation of a militaristic ransom culture even resulted in the creation of the term prisoner of war. Historian Remy Amboul says that the practice of ransoming captives was so lucrative that it began to be extended to commoners and non-combatants. In fact, he argued that money was perhaps the single greatest reason that the Hundred Years' War lasted as long as it did, explaining that patriotism was not the driving force to encourage military enrollment, and ordinary men would have been reluctant to join armies willingly if they faced death upon capture. However, under the terms of ransom, prisoners were less likely to be harmed, and additionally, the practice provided them with an opportunity to make money, another incentive to enlist. Eventually, materialism started to penetrate the entire structure of the war, where the continuation of war meant the continuation of profits, and soldiers quickly began to realize that even the nickel-and-dime ransoms of commoner prisons were worth their interest. The military-industrial complex had emerged. But Joan of Arc wasn't a common prisoner. The Armagnac forces of Charles had fully accepted the idea that God spoke through her. They believed that her presence was a physical reminder that their deity was firmly on their side. But just because one side of the political establishment identifies themselves with religion doesn't mean that their opposition has to cede God to them. There are no dibs when it comes to religion. The British also believed that God was on the side of their king, Henry VI, the boy whom they believed was destined to unite the French and British kingdoms. Joan's capture would be seen as proof to their supporters that God remained on their side, more importantly, it offered an opportunity to prove that the voices in Joan's head came from hell rather than heaven. In what is one of the great mysteries of the Joan of Arc story, Charles VII, the king who owed his crown entirely to the maid, never raised a single banner to try and rescue or negotiate a price for the return of Joan of Arc. There are a few leading theories, some of which qualify as conspiratorial as to why not. The most plausible ones revolve around the powerful emotion of jealousy. The kings of France are used to always receiving the loudest ovation at every town, but Charles's star had dimmed in comparison to the blazing inferno that was God's messenger. While Joan knelt in loyalty to Charles, the people of France bowed in homage to her. She had grown increasingly more vocal during the campaign in her demands for more action, troops, and money. Perhaps the simplest story is the accurate one, and that Charles was glad to see her out of his hair, having already accomplished 90% of the job. 
He may have even felt that he didn't need her to accomplish the remaining 10%. The official story was twofold. First, if Joan was a messenger of God, then he likely would either not let anything bad happen to her, or it was just a part of his unknowable grand scheme. If that were the case, then interference would be going against God's wishes. I've always hated this line of thinking because it doesn't stand any test of logical scrutiny. Those that chose to interfere and were successful could just as easily claim that God had desired their interference and thus they had been compelled to do so by a higher power. The Bishop of Reims dramatically urged the king to act, claiming that failure to rescue Joan of Arc would amount to monstrous ingratitude to God for abandoning the aid that had been dutifully sent from heaven. He warned that such a betrayal could result in God switching sides in the conflict. To push back against those that believed as the bishop did, Charles began to let it be known that it was Joan rather than he who had been abandoned by God. He did so by waging a two-front propaganda campaign. First, he pointed out that Joan had reached far past her original mission, disobeying his wishes in pushing so hard for an attack on Paris, which the king now, after the fact, claimed that he absolutely knew would not succeed. Secondly, he paraded out a new, young messenger from God, this time a boy shepherd. This new prophet parroted the messaging of the king, telling all who would listen that God had allowed the maid to be taken because consumed by pride and luxury, she had done what she wanted rather than following God's commands. The regent's crisis management team worked overtime to make it clear to all that Joan's judgment only reflected on her and not the king that she had crowned. Jean de Luxembourg held on to his prized captive for three days before ransoming her to the King of England, who then handed her off to the Catholic Church in his French lands. Keep in mind that the papal schism had put France's church directly at odds with the Catholics in Rome. The Bishop of Beauval, Pierre Cawthron, was put in charge of her trial. Cochin was a scholar and lawyer who had previously succeeded in defending John the Fearless in regards to his brazen alleyway assassination of Louis, the Duke of Orleans. From the very beginning, Pierre had sided with the leaders of English France and was incredibly resentful at the fact that he had been thrown out of office after Joan successfully flipped his town to the Armagnac side. He was a man of faith, however, and approached the trial with the belief that if he managed to get Joan to repent, he would be able to save her life. Or failing that, perhaps he could save her heavenly soul. Plus, all of the attention meant that he would likely be promoted to the position of Archbishop if he secured the King of England's desires. It took some time to raise the payment necessary to fund Joan's ransom, as the ransom culture was so deeply ingrained that it could push back even against requests from the king. While she waited in a state of purgatory, Joan attempted to escape from her prison by squeezing herself through two beams of wood 
that had been placed across an opening in her prison cell. She was in the midst of walking out of the dungeon when guards recognized her. Upon telling the bishop that she had a moral obligation to escape prison, after all, she was on a mission from God, who superseded any and all earthly promises, she was moved to the significantly more secure tower of the castle Ligny. It didn't take long for her to attempt a second jailbreak, this time leaping out of the 60-foot-high tower into the castle's bone-dry ditch. Somewhat miraculously, she was merely knocked unconscious for her efforts and spent the next few months healing in her jailer's sick ward. She was questioned extensively about this second prison attempt, as taking one's own life was considered a mortal sin, and thus any attempted suicide could be used as evidence against her holiness. Under intense questioning, she gave conflicting stories as to the reasoning for her desperate leap. On some days, she told a heroic version of the day's events, claiming that she had leapt in a misguided rescue attempt after having heard a rumor that all of the women and children within the surrounding town were set to be killed. Joan stoically told her captors, and I would rather be dead than live on after such a destruction of good people. At her lowest moments, however, she informed her captors that she knew she had been sold to the English and preferred death to captivity. It was determined that Rowan would be the location for the trial of the centuries-long war. Castor points out that upon her arrival on Christmas Eve, she had been 13 months a soldier and 7 months a captive. Although there were those within English France who wanted to quickly and quietly eliminate Joan and her ability to influence others, it was determined that the priority ought to be discrediting the claim that she had been sent by God. Thus, the first public hearing was held on February 21, 1431. It is believed that she was either 18 or 19 years old at this point facing down 42 of the finest theological and legal minds in English France, meaning that they were all inclined to initially doubt her. Worse for Joan was the fact that church doctrine presumed guilt rather than innocence. To make matters worse, she received no legal counsel or representation. It was her against the court. The opening of the hearing included the following statement against the defendant. This woman, utterly disregarding what is honorable in the female sex, breaking the bounds of modesty and forgetting all feminine decency, has disgracefully put on the clothing of the male sex. A shocking and vile monstrosity. And what is more, her presumption went so far that she dared to do, say, and disseminate many things beyond and contrary to the Catholic faith, and injurious to the articles of its orthodox belief. Note that the entirety of that statement was about Joan's audacity to wear men's clothing. Even the last sentence regarding the dissemination of things contrary to the Catholic place was related to a woman knowing her place. Joan was offered proper feminine attire during her first imprisonment, but had declined after claiming that her task was not yet complete. 
This was the final straw for those who would be her prosecutors. In this action, the maid had been caught red-handed by her deeds, her words, and apparently her wardrobe. The church had the option of handing her over to the secular English courts. They were controlled by the English, who would have immediately burnt her at the stake. The church's involvement gave her a sliver of hope. Her ideal course of action was to convince the clergy that she was indeed sent by God, and that they needed to join her. At worst, she needed to delay long enough for God to muster up the courage to save her, as her voices promised he would. The middle course of action was to submit to the will of the church and spend the rest of her years on earth at a nunnery. At least then she would be able to attend church and receive the Eucharist, both of which were denied to her during her captivity in an effort to force her to confess and repent. She was subjected to intrusive physical searches of her body to once again determine if she remained a virgin, under the assumption that failure to retain her purity before wedlock made her an unsuitable vessel for God to work through. This line of thinking harkens back to pagan religions that focused on virginal purity, such as ancient Greek worship as well as a number of Mesoamerican faiths. This way of thinking also neglects the fact that Jesus, the Christian Messiah, and who was also God according to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, regularly worked through prostitutes, with some even believing that the exalted Mary Magdalene served as a lady of the night at one point in her life. The contradiction is irrelevant in this instance, however, as she once again passed all purity tests. She had spent more than a year far from home, surrounded by men whom continuously faced near-certain death, with her own personal fame reaching heights that at least approached that of royalty. Joan had never broken her vow of chastity before marriage. From the beginning of the public proceeding, it was clear that this wasn't going to be a quick and easy judicial case. Joan balked at the formality of taking a sacred oath that obligated her to swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. Without the protection of the American Fifth Amendment, she informed the court that such an oath was impossible unless she was granted knowledge regarding what questions they were going to ask. She eventually agreed to tell the truth about her faith her family and upbringing, but she claimed that she wasn't allowed to talk about her visions for at least eight more days. At this point, those individuals that imagined she might attempt to stall in order to buy time for her rescuers felt vindicated. The inquisitors asked at least four more times before finally accepting a partial oath that excluded her visions. The beginning of the hearing merely established basic information, including her name, age, and gender. She was asked if she knew the basic prayers of the church, and was asked to recite a few in order to prove that she was actually a good Christian. Again, Joan stalled, stating that she knew the Lord's Prayer and would be happy to recite it, but only within a private confession setting with a priest, who would presumably keep her response private. At the end of the day, the bishop, as a formality, reminded Joan that she shouldn't attempt an escape. 
even this simple statement brought out defiance in the maid, who proclaimed that attempting to escape wouldn't be breaking an oath, because she had never consented to be imprisoned. Then she complained about how uncomfortable the leg irons that she was continually kept in were. I love the spunk within the young lady, but telling your captors that you are definitely interested in escaping isn't the best thing to do if you plan to subsequently ask them to remove your chains. The second day of questioning continued the shenanigans of the first. Once again, she refused to take an oath to begin the day, proclaiming that she already did that yesterday. She then began to threaten the religious men that interrogated her, proclaiming that if they were well informed about her, they would wish that they were done with her, for her actions were directly guided through heavenly revelation. She picked through the parts of her life that she wanted to talk about. For instance, she went on in great length about how no one could best her at sewing, but abruptly told the judges to move on when they asked about the appropriateness of conducting the capital attack on a holy feast day. She gradually began to speak about her voices and revelations, detailing when and how often she heard them. It was here, along with questions regarding her choice to dress in male clothing, that her answers were the most inconsistent. When asked about why she was willing to answer questions along these lines now, she informed them that the voices had told her to answer boldly. This was advice that a professional lawyer likely wouldn't have given. These scholarly men were born of the prejudice of both the time period and the Christian faith, both of which believed that women should be humble, particularly uneducated peasant girls. Her boldness, defiance, and pride in her accomplishments weren't going to help her in winning over the court to her side. In direct defiance to modern-day jury management, she displayed boldness throughout her answers during each of the six public hearings. Another stalling tactic performed by Joan was to regularly respond to questions with her own questions. Her responses would have made Socrates, the inventor of such a practice, proud. One example given by Castor is in response to a question regarding which language the voices spoke to Joan in. The original question was whether or not St. Margaret spoke English. Joan's response was to ask, why would she speak English when she is not on the English side? When the public portion of the trial came to an end, Joan was left in a cell with little to no company. We know scientifically that solitary confinement can cause prisoners to develop anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and psychosis. It is widely regarded by today's social sciences as a form of torture. Isolated confinement also results in a dramatic decline in the prisoner's overall physical health. While Joan was left to herself, the Inquisitors poured through the notes from the hearings, looking for inconsistencies and checking Joan's answers against canon law, which was regularly being reinterpreted. Interrogation broke up some of the monotony and during this week she began to hint that a physical sign of her heavenly mission could be obtained, as she let slip that she had been given a crown. 
Castor recounts Joan's story for us, writing that at Shannon after Esther in 1429, an angel had brought her king a crown of pure gold, its richness unfathomable, wrought so finely that no goldsmith in the world could have made it. The heavenly being had bowed before the king, and Joan could see, though the others present could not, that he was attended by a consortium of other angels, some with wings, some with crowns, and among them were her own beloved saints, Catherine and Margaret. Sire, here is your sign, take it, Joan had said, and the crown signified. The angel declared that the king would have his kingdom of France with God's help if he would give Joan soldiers and put her to work. The angel gave the crown to the Archbishop of Reims, who subsequently gave it to the king. No lawyer would have counseled this statement, but Joan hadn't been granted access to counsel, nor had she been university educated, let alone within the specific field of canon law. If the crown could be found, it would be proof of Joan's story, but no one had ever seen a mysterious new crown on the head of Charles, particularly not one that was wrought so finely that no goldsmith in the world could have made it. In the eyes of the scholars, it would be downright disrespectful for him to have not worn a gift from heaven, and no one could imagine why a king would remain silent regarding such a gift. Here, they had finally managed to catch Joan in what appears to have been a clear lie. The maid later, under questioning, would claim that it was merely a metaphorical crown that she had given to the king rather than the physical one that she had previously described. On March 18th, the bishop drafted the formal articles of accusation. The initial draft contained 70 crimes, which were later condensed down to 12. Professor Douglas Linder includes a transcript of each of the 70 articles, as well as Joan's individual answers to each and every charge against her. It is an incredible read that the court officials painstakingly recorded for posterity. Everyone involved knew that this court case was historical in nature. I like to think that I'm raising my daughter to speak truth to power and to represent herself as a strong, empowered individual. If you are one and the same regarding any women in your life or feel this way about yourself, I encourage you to look up Douglas Linder's Famous Trials website and read through Joan's answers. They are defiant, sarcastic at times, thoughtful, and consistent. They truly represent the supposed God-gifted powers of St. Catherine, who bestowed upon those who were worthy the ability to answer with poise and clarity. I will summarize for you the 12 articles that she faced for the trial portion, which would go on to last for the next three months of Joan's life. Article 1 claimed that she was lying about seeing-slash-hearing the Saints Margaret and Catherine. The second article regarded the admission that she and the angels had gifted a crown to Charles. The third article questions whether or not she ever conversed with Saint Michael. The fourth article charges her with claiming that she could see the future. 
The fifth article charged her with willfully choosing to wear men's clothing. Article six involved her using the Lord's name in vain within letters that threatened to kill her English enemies in his name. Article seven claimed that she had disobeyed her parents in seeking out the king. Article eight claims that she attempted to commit suicide by leaping out of the tower which she had been imprisoned within. Article 9 charged her for claiming to be without mortal sin. Article 10 sought to punish her for claiming that God loved the Armanacs more than the Burgundines. Article 11 circles back once more to whether or not her visions were demons in disguise, as well as the failure to produce the crown that she had said had been gifted. Finally, Article 12 was a generic obstruction of justice claim against her. By the time that April had rolled around, Joan had been a prisoner under the hyper-intense microscope of the church for a full ten months. Illness was upon her after the bishop had left her in near solitary confinement for two straight weeks. In addition to the locked cell door, Joan found herself bound in leg and arm irons around the clock. There is little doubt that Joan was sexually assaulted by her guards. Whether it was unwanted advances, touching, or full-blown assault isn't clear. But what we do know is that Joan was under a constant state of threat while captive. Throughout the ten months, she had steadfastly refused to give up men's clothing, even in exchange for the ability to attend Mass, something that she desperately wanted. Perhaps she imagined that hearing the church bells again would make everything that had happened over the past three years better. The men's clothing, with its ties and multiple layers, made assault more difficult. But a lone female prisoner, shackled as she was and as famous as she had become, made her an obvious target for malicious wrongdoing. Such assaults were reported in the court records, but it seems as though little was done to either prosecute the crimes or to better protect their ward. Near the end of the two weeks of near-solitary confinement, Joan begged her captors to let her experience the sacrament of confession, as she feared that she was on death's doorstep. Still, her captors continued to refuse any and all religious sacraments until she confessed what they wanted to hear first. She was finally brought forth from her oppressive cell on May 2nd, and warned that if she did not admit her wrongdoing, per the twelve articles that had been read against her, the church would have no choice but to hand her over to the British secular court which they assured her would immediately burn her at the stake. They steadfastly encouraged her to choose to spend the rest of her life in a nunnery. Their patience quickly wore thin, as thin as the emaciated body of the maid. One week after offering a stay of execution, they turned into the bad cop, deciding to utilize torture in order to extract a confession. They brought out all of the medieval torture devices so that she could look upon them with her own eyes, imagining what specific task and unique pain each one was specifically designed to inflict. 
When it came time to proceed, however, the girl of 19 years calmly looked her jailers in the eye and said, In truth, if you were to have me torn limb from limb and my soul separated from my body, I still won't tell you anything more. And if I did tell you anything else about this afterwards, I would always say that you had made me say it by force. The bishop heard truth in the words she spoke and called off the torture before it could begin. Sensing that traveling down such a path would only cause more harm to the court's already tattered reputation within France. Everyone knew that based upon her defiance within a court whose default setting was locked on presumption of guilt, that there could be only one sentence. On the day that the verdict came in, Joan was escorted from her cell and driven directly past the scaffolding that had been set up in anticipation. The sight clearly startled the young lady. Upon her arrival to the court, she interrupted the bishop before he could announce the decision. She at last proclaimed what the inquisitors had wanted to hear, that she was guilty of all the things that she was accused of. But her admission came with a caveat as she claimed she had done it all at God's order. There was brilliance within this last-ditch argument to save her life, as punishing her for her actions would mean that the church would simultaneously be turning their back on God's grand scheme. In order to unspool this tangled defense, she called upon the church to appeal to Rome and for the Pope himself to preside over a new trial. For those in the camp of Joan was just trying to buy time for rescue to come, this was the ultimate move. Wait until the very last moment and then declare a mistrial so that you can start all over again. The bishop knew that his English overlords would never allow such an action, but he didn't just go on to read the sentence that he had planned. Instead, he agreed that his court had no jurisdiction to make such a decision regarding God's master plan. But rather than involve Rome, the bishop merely gave Joan over to the secular side of the law, a courthouse setting that he had repeatedly warned her would burn her at the stake. Faced with the fire, Joan broke, and she broke hard sobbing and repeating over and over again that she wished to submit. Although the guilty verdict had been spoken by a different court, the bishop almost immediately retracted his passing of the torch to the state and began to recite the prayers that make up Catholic confession at Mass. Rather than set fire to the young lady, the bishop again took the middle ground. The final verdict of the church court was that she should live out her days in the penance of perpetual imprisonment, eating the bread of sorrow and drinking the water of affliction as she wept for her sin. The public raged at having missed out on the chance to see a public execution, whether by the gallows or stake. But Joan submitted to the bishop's authority agreeing to accept her imprisonment with humble obedience and never repeat any stories about supposed voices from God. 
She also had to abandon the shameful male clothing that she wore and was immediately handed a dress to put on. What happened the next morning is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries regarding Joan's short life. Guards arrived to check on how she was settling in, only to find her once again back in men's clothing. The girl's explanation of what happened is reported by a judge within the trial record. He writes, I heard from Joan that a great English lord entered her prison and tried to violate her by force and she told me that this was the reason why she resumed male clothing after the first sentence. Reportedly, the bishop, upon hearing that she had violated the terms of their agreement, proclaimed happily, It is over. What remains unclear to this very day is who gave her the men's clothing after the assault. The record is unclear on this key detail. Victims of sexual assault and their allies refer to this as a clear hashtag MeToo moment, as a woman was forced to wear something that made her uncomfortable, but which simultaneously made it easier for her to be the target of a powerful, privileged man. When confronted by the bishop, Joan's brain was scattered, perhaps because she had just survived an assault. Perhaps the illness and lack of sleep had scrambled her thinking, Perhaps she felt guilty, afraid, or abandoned for disobeying the voices in her head who had told her to wait for God's help and not relent. Out poured a litany of reasons behind her actions. She told the bishop that she preferred these clothes, as well as that she didn't understand that yesterday's previous oath prevented her from wearing them. She put them on because her captors still hadn't let her attend Mass or confession as promised. She did it because she was surrounded by men, rather than women. The damage was done. The bishop had immediate reason to believe that her submission at the sentencing was related to her fear of the fire, and not because her heart had been so moved by the Holy Spirit. As a relapsed heretic, she now had to be abandoned by the church. She was finally given the Eucharist and received the sacrament of confession, before being led from her cell and paraded around on a cart. Upon her shaven head, she was forced to wear a cap bearing the words, Relapsed Heretic. She was tied to the stake, and it was set alight. Those that recorded the sight of the death of Joan of Arc report that she was incredibly pious and brave in the face of insurmountable, excruciating agony. Her executioner reports that he was unable to ease her suffering, which was typically done by wrapping a cord around the victim's neck and secretly strangling them while the crowd's vision was obscured by the smoke. But the English had built the pyre higher than usual in order to allow everyone in the crowd to be able to see but it was so high that the executioner was unable to reach Joan's neck in time. Thus, for hours, Joan burned in the pangs of anguish, her lips moving in restless, ceaseless prayer, calling out to Jesus in a voice that was described as high and urgent, 
her promised help, had never arrived. Castor informs us of the immediate aftermath, writing that after she had taken her last breath and her clothes were all burned away, the executioner had raked back the fire to expose her charred and naked body, still bound as it was to the stake, so that the people could see beyond any doubt that she was truly a woman. Then, when they had stared enough, he had stoked the flames higher and higher until her flesh and bones were nothing but ashes. Those ashes were then dumped into the river Sign, so as to prevent any fragments of her corpse from being retrieved and used as holy relics, like perhaps in an apothecary's office. Five copies of the trial record were created and signed by the judges. The survival of one of those books is why we have such an excellent understanding of what happened to Joan during the final year of her life. Upon her death, Charles, the dolphin whom Joan had seen crowned as king, remained silent. Joan's legend was faithfully maintained by those who had interacted with her and had truly believed that they were following God's word through this teenage girl's orders. Although it had nothing to do with the maid's arrival or her subsequent departure from this earth, the Burgundians and Armanacs eventually set aside their feud and joined forces. Together, they routed the nine-year-old King Henry VI and pushed the English all the way back until the Brits were left with just one city on the French mainland. The victory was a result of the French mastery of the battlefield cannon, rather than inspiration drawn from God. The war technically went on for 20 more years before an official peace was signed, upon which both kingdoms turned inward to find their next enemy, with the English beginning the War of the Roses and the Burgundians once again turning on an Armanac named Louis. In order to prevent a repetition of the past, Louis IX bought off the English king, paying him a vast fortune to remain on the sidelines of the British Isles this time. When talking about Joan of Arc's legacy, one has to start with the fact that she absolutely turned the tide in favor of the French. Without her bursting upon the scene at the precise moment that she had, it is likely that France would not exist. The entirety of Eurocentric world history changes on that basis. But Joan didn't live to see peace. In fact, she never lived a day on this world at any moment where her nation knew peace. Thus, the victory of the French over the English can't just be her legacy. Groups across the spectrum have adopted Joan of Arc as their symbol. Political parties on all sides of the political spectrum in France claim to this day that she would support them. The left because of her social justice platform and the right because of her attack-first, ask-questions-later attitude. Suffragettes claim her as a symbol of female voices in governance. Feminists claim her as one of their leading icons. 
as do the rural poor and the underprivileged. But Joan was not of a divided mind. For her, it was all of these things. No one could imagine an uneducated individual emerging out of the rural backwaters to run a successful army in the midst of a war against a more powerful enemy. Now add in the fact that she was 16 when she did so. Then add to that the fact that she was a girl. Next add to that that she was a cross-dresser. And then add to that the fact that she claimed to hear voices in her head. At age 16, this girl led men. She faced them, bossed them around, comforted them, was challenged by them, and unfortunately was assaulted by them. She succeeded where she should have failed, and even in failing has continued to inspire others for more than 500 years. Women in this era achieved power only through marriage and subtlety neither of which applied to this feisty French woman. Women today still have not achieved the success on a scale that Joan did. Individual women did manage to achieve the status of warriors in the ancient world, but typically disappeared from the battlefield after Alexander the Great's day. Women associated with war, in the way that Joan was, rarely exist. Take Elizabeth I, for instance. Known for sinking the Spanish Armada, she led the fleet from the strategy room rather than the front lines. The website Rejected Princess has assembled an awesome list of historical women in the battlefields. Unfortunately, few names are recognizable, as none are taught in school. But next time I assign a report, I am definitely going to suggest names such as Jean Hatchett, whom the website describes as a badass French axe-wielder, as well as Sri Surathai, who died saving her husband and daughter, while atop a war elephant in full armor. America, unfortunately, doesn't yet have anyone on the list. But that isn't a surprise, as my nation didn't let women serve in its military forces until after World War II and maintained an internal policy of not allowing women to fight on the front lines all the way up until 2018. Only 16 other countries in the world maintained such a policy. 104 countries in the world still restrict women from working in some fields, a policy choice that affects the options of 2.7 billion women, more than half of the world's population. We are still fighting not just for wage equality in the workforce, but equality and opportunity as well. Historian Donald Spato claims that Joan is still relevant today for the fact that she rose up during an interminable war and shifted its focus away from money. He also looks at how she stood up for what was right, rather than what the church said. Joan offered a true challenge to the Catholic Church 30 years before Martin Luther had become fed up enough to lead the Reformation. The Armanacs continued to maintain French solidarity with Catholicism, one of the few nations to do so during the upheaval that was the Wars of Religion. As a result, Catholic France would go on to produce 22 different saints for the Church that had turned its back on Joan. 
I have mentioned a couple of times that it isn't a historian's job to determine whether or not Joan had a real connection to God's saints. A historian's job is to account for how people react or change based upon the person's influence. But this doesn't mean that historians don't form opinions regarding the supernatural. Spoto points out that it is pretty much impossible to write Joan off as a lunatic, because there are simply no other examples of someone so mentally ill accomplishing the things that she achieved. Lunatics, and people who were deranged, don't survive in history, Spoto states for the record. He is among the school of historians that take a metaphorical approach to Joan's visions, interpreting it the same way that someone in today's world would say that their favorite song speaks to them. It is a feeling rather than an actual voice. It is a simple way of explaining a profound feeling that overcomes us. Still others are convinced that Joan had help from beyond, as there were just too many coincidences in a row that went in her favor. Still, science seeks to understand the apparent source of Joan's powers by floating a plethora of diagnoses as explanations, including epilepsy, schizophrenia, migraines, bipolar disorder, brain lesions, as well as bovine tuberculosis as a result of the sheepherder drinking unpasteurized milk. It took some time, but the two institutions that were most guilty of abandoning Joan repented. Joan's parents had immediately asked the French king to conduct his own posthumous trial to vindicate Joan. Each time they were turned down. But like all parents who have lost a loved one, they were persistent in their singular focus to restore their daughter's reputation. In 1455, their efforts paid off and Joan's case was opened up, this time with an investigation led by bishops who had remained loyal to the Armanac cause. This investigation uncovered multiple instances of bias in the Inquisition that would cause them to have preconceived opinions of the defendant, as well as conducting outright witness intimidation. They also found a number of individuals who were willing to change their testimony now that a new government had been installed in Paris. At this new trial, Joan's friends and families were allowed to testify on her behalf. It came to light that some of the evidence used to convict Joan had come from a secret informant who had been carefully planted in a cell near Joan in an attempt to gain her confidence at her weakest moment. After a year and a half of investigation, the judges appointed to review the bishop's work declared that the twelve articles through which the maid had been condemned had been drawn up corruptly, deceitfully, slanderously, fraudulently, and maliciously. As a result, the trial record and the sentence against her were utterly null, invalid, and void. Castor continues, telling us that according to the French, Joan had been innocent and she was justified, decreeing that a cross should be built on the location where she died to preserve a memory of her forever. Napoleon would go further in the 19th century, making her the national symbol of the country. 
The Catholic Church moves slowly, like really slow, but they do oftentimes eventually get to the destination that their followers desire. On May 16, 1920, the Catholic Church officially recognized Joan of Arc as a saint. The process was a long road that involved a third trial regarding the events of her life. The efforts to saint her had begun in 1869. By 1904, three miracles had been recognized, each involving an instance of three nuns who were cured of grievous illness after Joan prayed for them. Pope Pius X, an Italian, waved off the need for a fourth miracle upon considering that she had saved France. To this day, the French celebrate the Feast of St. Joan on May 30th, the anniversary of her execution, the date of her martyrdom at the hands of the English. Rather than a warrior saint like Michael the Archangel, Joan is recognized as a saint of reconciliation, one that can bring together and unite rather than divide. That is perhaps her greatest legacy. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.